Hi, my name is Rebecca Knudsen, and I work as a registered nurse in Rochester, Minnesota. I love listening to Compelled because it is so encouraging to hear how God is working in ordinary people's lives to do extraordinary things through the amazing power of His redemption and grace. I want to thank my mom for introducing me to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And then I heard the thud of someone coming down the stairs and the door kind of swings open. It's my brother and he throws this black trash bag in my face and he says, pack your things, we're leaving. I'm Paul Hastings and you're listening to Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming Christians around the world. Last week, our guest was Deepa Sukumar, a Hindu medical student with a successful career ahead of her, but who was actually struggling with anxiety, self-worth, and a true lack of peace. Then one night when she was at the end of her rope and ready to end her life, God knocked on the door of her heart. Again, you can hear that entire story by tuning in to last week's episode with Deepa Sukumar. Today, our guest is Jamie Kent, who as a young child saw his entire world fall apart in just a matter of minutes. Yet as his earthly family imploded, little did he know that a heavenly father was watching from above. So lean in and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. Last year, I heard from a longtime listener of Compelled who told me about some friends that he had who he thought would make for some good guests on our show. One thing led to another, and before you knew it, I was in Tampa, Florida this summer recording interviews, and one of those friends was Jamie. I met Jamie at the office of No More, a growing nonprofit that Jamie and his wife started. Their mission is to combat modern-day slavery, poverty, parentlessness, and hopelessness by equipping the church to serve these populations. And the reason that Jamie feels so passionately about this mission is because of what he personally experienced as a child. My parents divorced when I was about a year old, and my mother remarried quickly after that, and we moved um, into a small town in the Midwest in Iowa and um, lived with him and his two boys. I would tell you that, that that those years from the ages of about two and a half to three to 10 seemed fairly normal for me. You know, just a boy, you know, growing up in a small Midwest town, but there was a lot of things that were happening that I didn't realize weren't so normal. Uh, our stepfather was very abusive to our family. Uh, while he was still a provider, and even got us into things, you know, that were fun. Uh, we, we raced BMX. It was a neat season of life for me as a little boy because here we were in this small town and me and my biological brother and my two stepbrothers, we all raced BMX. And, and our stepfather would take us all over the state and the country racing. And we got pretty good at it. In my bedroom, we had this these shelves and we just had trophy after trophy after trophy of, of races that we had won. And so we, you know, we had bikes that were given to us. It was, we were sponsored at racers and then the towns kind of, you know, build us a little track across the street from our house. And so there was these really fun years of life. And, um, and yet behind that was a, a stepfather who was extremely, abusive um, and controlling. I remember one time we we got some new bikes um, from a sponsor and we wanted to ride them. 
and we uh, were riding around town and we saw uh, one of the town workers retarring the road. And so we just kind of stopped and watched, you know, watched him retar the road. Just I don't know why, it just seemed kind of neat. Uh, and little did we know that there was tar specks that were flying everywhere and they landed all over our new bikes or our, our BMX uniforms that we were riding in. Uh, and we came home and he was just livid. And he had this uh, uh, two by four uh, that sat in his garage that he would use uh, when he was angry with us. And, um, and then he would use that two by four on our, on our backsides or the back of our legs. And, uh, and so many times I was, a, I guess I was a mischievous child, not because I intended to be just because I was very curious with life. And, um, and we, we really, we struggled with that. Uh, I would say that my perspective of God was more of a authoritarian kind of view in the sense that, you know, we, we grew up in this small little town and we had three churches in this small town and four bars. So they're, you know, it's a very weird, interesting situation. And then the three churches, we had a Lutheran church, we had a Catholic church and we had a Presbyterian church. My mom would take us to the Catholic church and I did catechism as a child. Uh, but I always found myself in mischievous situations because like I said, I was curious. And so when the priest would preach on a Sunday morning, I remember a couple of occasions, once he talked about referencing the body of Christ, I believe, and he was talking about the sacraments. And at some point he mentioned that there was this little door next to his pulpit where they kept the sacraments, but somehow I connected that was the, where the body of Jesus was. And so I was like, that's where Jesus' body is? I gotta see this. So after service one morning, I literally walked up as he was greeting people and grabbed his big old chair and pulled it over towards and started climbing up the wall and he grabs me by the leg you know, and pulls me down, hands me back to my mom. And I was like, well, okay. Um, whenever I got in trouble, my mom would send me to see Father McDonald to share about what I had done. And he, uh -huh. and Father McDonald would give me things to pray, as you know, in the Catholic faith. And I would pray those things, but they just didn't feel real to me. You know, I was always doing confession. It felt like a lot. I do remember a time when, you know, because it was always interesting to me when you walk into a Catholic church, you dip your fingers in this water and you do the, you know, crucifix and cross your body and, and then kneel and all that stuff. And I, I found it very interesting and I didn't know why all that. And I do remember here is the priest again talking about some of those things and how that rep, this water represents the Holy Spirit. And, and I was like, well, why are we putting it on the outside of us? Why wouldn't we put it in? Uh -huh. And so then... I found a straw and walked up to that thing. <laughs> I guess even at a young age, oh, you know, man. this the scripture says that, you know, no one comes to the father unless he draws them. Right. And so even at this young age, and he also says he puts eternity on every man's heart. 
So here I was as a little boy, just trying to understand who God was. Yeah. Yet I had this priest who was kind of the, the the example for me, and he was very strong. And I don't want to say he didn't like me, but I probably push his buttons a uh. lot. And so I, I think that was the last straw, no pun intended, to be at that <laughs> Catholic church. And so we, you know, we stopped going shortly after that. Jamie was just a regular kid. He went to school every day, he had hobbies, enjoyed watching TV, rode bikes, and he had siblings that sometimes got on his nerves. And yeah, he had a mischievous side too. He was pretty much like any other kid in your neighborhood. And true, his stepfather could be physically abusive, which is terrible. But Jamie just kind of thought that was normal. And for seven years, life went on until one night when he was 10 years old, everything changed. It was close to a costume day at school. And I lived in one of those split floor plan houses. So my bedroom was kind of at, you know, ground level. The window was right there at the ground. And I was so excited about the next day for school. I uh, got my costume. I kind of laid it out at the edge of my bed and turned off the light. And what was your costume? Uh, it was a it was a scary costume, but it was not like uh, anything too terrible. Had you know just one of those masks that you wear and the whole outfit. But you know I was excited nonetheless, and and I laid it out and I closed it. I turned off the light and I I just couldn't sleep. Right? I mean, here I am, a ten year old boy, just excited about the next day. And and as I'm staring at the ceiling, I begin to see lights flashing, you know, red light and blue light and back and forth and back and forth. And then I started hearing banging on the front door. You know, obviously scared, didn't know what was going on. And there was commotion upstairs running, it felt it sounded like. And, and I just was curled up in my bed, you know, wondering what's going on upstairs, yelling. And and then I got quiet, but only for a, a second. And then I heard the thud of someone coming down the stairs and the door kind of swings open. The light comes on, it's my brother. And he just literally throws this black trash bag in my face and he says, pack your things, we're leaving. And I was so confused. I mean, here I'm just a kid and I'm like, what, leave? I'm not leaving tomorrow's like costume day, right? I'm going to school, I'm excited. And in behind my brother comes an officer and he begins to tell me that I can't stay there and that I needed to pack up my things. They would take me somewhere else. So it's just a surreal moment, like literally going through my belongings, trying to pack up all my belongings in this black trash bag that my brother handed me. And, you know, I remember so clearly walking up the stairs and kind of peering over the, the railing. And I saw my mom on the floor, she was crying. And my stepfather, he was in handcuffs. And little did I know that my, my sister finally broke down and confessed to my mom that my stepfather had been sexually abusing her, along with obviously the physical abuse that we had experienced. And so police got involved, of course, and, you know, 
And I was, you know, after staring at that for a second, the officer just kind of ushered me out the door and that was it. They drove us into the city and we went to stay with a, I guess, a, a, a family friend um, that I'd never met before. But we were only there for a short time, you know. That was the last night Jamie has ever seen his stepbrothers. They had been his family since he was three years old, and he had been quite close to them. And just like that, in one night, gone. Jamie, his mom, his brother, and his sister began moving from place to place, never sticking around very long. Jamie began acting out in school and at home and began drinking alcohol when no one was watching. As a 10-year-old, his whole life was a very messy blur. I remember a moment my sister was, uh, she was hanging out with her boyfriend and their friends in, in this small little apartment that we were living in. And they were smoking weed and drinking and I was in my room minding my own business. And then I, I could hear them saying, where's your brother? And so I closed my door and then they kind of, I tried to barricade my door, but I'm still young. I can't hold my door closed. These what seemed like adult men and they just they were so high and drunk you know they wanted to I think they wanted to like play with me but I didn't want to have anything to do with it so it got aggressive and then they started grabbing me and they grabbed me by my ankles and started pounding my head on the laminate floor uh, maybe intentionally unintentionally but all I knew was to fight and so I just started swinging at their legs, at their stomachs, you know, and finally I got in a good punch and the guy dropped me, dropped me on my head. And, and I, I kind of staggered standing up because they thought maybe they'd really hurt me. And, and then I just ran. I like literally left this apartment and just kept running. It was about a 10-mile journey from our apartments to my mom's work at the mall. And I walked it. There was an 11-year-old boy just walking, and it took me all day. I can remember being so angry, not just with them, but with the situation that I was in. And so I, I, got, I finally got to the mall. It must have been, I think it was close to dark when I finally got there. And I just broke down. My mom looked at me shocked. I mean, this is before cell phones or any of that stuff. So she's like, what are you doing here? How did you get here? I told her I walked and, and then I just broke down crying and we were constantly in flux, you know, as, as a family, my, my brother and my sister and I, and my mom never secure. Now, Jamie's stepdad, of course, was completely out of the picture, but his biological dad had actually always stayed in touch with his kids and used to have visitation with them on the weekends back when he still lived in Iowa. After he remarried and moved to Georgia, he still had frequent phone calls with his kids and had always been a part of their life. Then, when Jamie was 12, his dad volunteered to keep all three kids at his home in Georgia for the summer. This particular summer, he was able to bring us down to visit. I got to tell you, it was pretty profound because here we were going from place to place in, in Iowa, you know, just trying to survive. 
And I come to see my dad for the summer and he lives in what I think is this mansion in this really nice neighborhood with a pool in the backyard. And I'm like, wow, there's more than I've seen in a while food in the refrigerator. And I'm like, I don't want to leave. And I don't think my dad fully knew everything that was going on. Not because he didn't want to. He's just far away. He didn't understand that we were struggling financially, probably. He didn't understand that my sister had trauma, my brother had trauma, I had trauma. And um, when it was coming close time for me to go back, I just broke down again. I was like, I don't want to go back. There's still some guilt there for me because I, I know I left my brother and my sister in that situation, but I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't stay there. That life would lead to something worse for me. And so my dad said, you don't have to go back. He called my mom and my mom, I know it was hard for her to let me go, but she knew it was probably the best for me. And that was the season of life. I was probably 12 years old when had a new home. It was a welcome reprieve and at a critical moment in Jamie's life. But there was still something else missing, which you'll hear about right after the break. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, 
then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Welcome back to Compelled. We've been listening to Jamie Kent share his story of seeing his home life completely fall apart as a 10-year-old. For two years, it had continued to grow worse, and Jamie had turned to alcohol as a way to cope. But now, Jamie had found a safe place living with his biological father, stepmom, and three new step-siblings in a completely different state. But there was still something missing. Here I was, a kid who, you know, for two years, all I knew to do was to fight for everything, to fight for the food that was in the refrigerator, to fight for um, security. I, I was I was aggressive. I, you know, lashed out a lot of times. And so I just was constantly in fights and and I was still coping at this age drinking. And my dad, you know, like typical guy he just had a lot of beer in the refrigerator in the garage and in the house. And so you know, some cans go missing here and there. I never even noticed to the point where I was drinking all the time. And then you get into middle school, high school, just gets worse and worse and worse. And you're going to parties and that's all I was doing. So much so that I was like literally bringing beer to school and drinking it before class. And so life was just very hectic, but there were some security things that I didn't have before. You know, I had a, had, a, had a dad, had a stepmom and some siblings and a very, what seemed to be a, a fairly normal life. We didn't go to church much. Occasionally we went here and there, uh, mostly during the holidays. But eventually my dad and my stepmom found a, a church they could settle on, a Lutheran church that we started attending more often, probably about the, I was about 14 and it did begin to plant seeds because when I got to this, this point of con true confusion as I'm hitting these years in my teenage years, I'm 16 and 17 years old and I'm really beginning to wrestle I'm wrestling with, you know, I've got friends who are like, you're always drinking, dude. you like, why are you always drinking? I get that we party, but do you have to drink at six in the morning? I, I think it was, I didn't want to experience the things I'd experienced when I was younger. So I was really trying to control my situation, but I was losing control because now I had this kind of addiction, if you will, towards a substance that would help me forget what I had experienced in my mind. So I met a, a, a friend in high school. His name was Alan and he kept bugging me about coming to church with him. And I was like, nah, I don't want to go this week. Nah, I don't want to go. And eventually, I guess maybe he thought if he invited other people that I liked, he would get me to come. And he did. This guy was always talking about Jesus. And I'm like, he is so weird. And 
I remember he goes, Hey man, I've got a kind of special thing going on at our church. And Hey, you know, this girl over here that you kind of hang out with a lot, she's coming. I'm like, really? (laughs) So it was very much, okay, pretty girl going to church. I'll go too. And I went and it was fun. You know, it was kind of more of just a laid back. They did all these games and stuff and it was fun. And I was like, all right, I can do this. I can hang. And there were some other, some of my other friends were there and we hung for a little while. We went for, I don't know, a couple months, probably just listening to the pastor. And then there was this, this message. I mean, he, he began to talk about our sin and our need for a savior to cover the things that we can't cover. And here I was through my teenage years trying to cover something that I knew that maybe not consciously, but subconsciously that I just, I couldn't fix. And there was things that I knew that I was struggling with and I couldn't figure out how to stop struggling. And here was this answer. And it was, it was Christ and his perfection and what he did, his finality on the cross. And even then I was still trying to control my situation. Like I was too embarrassed to even like truly like acknowledge that I needed something. Cause I, I had built this persona. Like I had it all figured out. People liked me. I was funny. I was enjoyable to be around that kind of stuff. And I just was like, not a care in the world kind of guy. So I didn't want people to know that I had a lot of cares that I had a lot of burden. And so even then when he was asking people if they needed Jesus to acknowledge that by raising their hand to stand up, whatever it was, I was still unsure. The youth pastor's name was Billy Lord. I'll never forget that. And so I pulled him aside one, one night and I said, I just don't know. I don't know that I can surrender. And he was so gracious with me. He sat there, he listened to me. And then he said, just think about the alternative. What if you don't? This is your life. This is your struggle without any hope. And I go, well, I don't want that. And, and then he began to, again, talk to me about the life of Christ and how he struggled just like I did and how he, he, he suffered so much so that I wouldn't have to struggle so that I wouldn't have to experience life without hope. I mean, Jesus did say in this world, you'll have trouble, right? So I knew that there would still be trouble. I knew there'd still be struggle in my life, but there was a sense that I no longer had to do it alone. And immediately I just said, okay, I'm ready. And he prayed in this small little room behind the sanctuary. He prayed with me and it was just like this. I felt free for the first time, truly felt free. So much so that I was like, so excited. I, I, I was embarrassed at first thinking, well, I don't know if my friends are going to accept us. And I was like, you know what? Forget that. 
I got to tell all my friends about what just happened to me because I've never felt this free before in my entire life. <laughs> I remember going and to tell my friends and, you know, I salvation is one thing. Sanctification is another. Right. And so I remember dropping cuss words in the midst of telling them about my salvation experience, but in such an exciting way. Right. And they're all just staring at me like, what? Okay. And then I just turned into this completely different person. I experienced the power of the resurrection, right? And in my life and no longer was this guy, Alan, weird to me, but he was a brother. And it's like, we we're going to take this high school by storm. And the two of us just began to pray together, to read the word together, to encourage one another and to share our faith with other people. And it was really in incredible season of my life of growing in my faith and understanding who God was. Now, a lot more happens. There's this really cool story about how Jamie's father was resistant to Christianity, but eventually accepts Christ into his life. And then Jamie meets Tammy, and they have a sweet love story that leads to them getting married. And you can actually hear both of those entire stories in our behind-the-scenes recording if you're one of our monthly Patreon members. But fast forward about 10 years. At this point, Jamie and his wife had two kids, were living in Tampa, and Jamie was working full-time in youth ministry. When God began pulling on his heart in a new way. Not only were we leading the youth ministry, but part of our role in the youth ministry was to take these kids on trips, to mission trips, to other places for them to experience and to see the need up close and personal. So we did things even from, you know, local trips right in our own city all the way to places like Nicaragua and Mexico. And, you know, we spent a lot of time in, in Central America and we just saw things that we'd never seen before. And I think that was, again, another kind of how the Lord allowed us and exposed us to things that we hadn't seen before. And then it helped me to connect maybe more subconsciously to the things that I had experienced in my past. We took a group of teenagers to Nicaragua. My wife and I were taking these teenagers all around the country and we were doing little skits and stuff for the communities and talking about Jesus and very traditional type of missions work that's short term like that. And there was one community that we went into, it was a very impoverished area. They had, you know, literally we pull up to what they said was the town and it was literally just nothing but a, a dirt road and trees all around us. We're like, this is not a town, this is just a forest. They said, no, just hold on. And slowly but surely people started coming out of the woods. Out of the woods? Out of the woods. They're children, they're adults, they're goats, they're chickens, they're everything. And all of a sudden in this little road, we've got all these people just standing. And my wife was handed a child and the mother is weeping and she's just holding the child. And the translator is talking to, to the mother and begging for my wife to take her child back to America, saying that she was dying. She had, apparently the child was about three years old and had stepped on a nail and was literally dying from this infection that in America, a little tetanus shot would take care of, right? They didn't have that. They didn't have means to medical. And so 
here was my wife holding the child that we would see on TV. And it was very profound. We knew we couldn't obviously take the child with us, but we were able to help the child get some medical attention. But even still, that's just one example of how poverty kind of invades people's lives mm. and changes their landscape. But then we got close to the the nationals that were leading our team. And it was a couple that was leading our team and that the wife was going to have to leave the country to go get a job out of out of the country. To support her to support her family. But it was very, very fishy. And the people that had approached them about her leaving, they had never met before, and it was going to be a she was going to be a maid in another country. And something didn't settle right. And we were so inspired. The whole, all these students were so inspired and they needed, in order to secure this, this family, they needed $8,000 to build a house there in Nicaragua. And the, the teenagers were so inspired by their story and did not want this family to be separated. They went back to the States and in two weeks they raised $8,000. Mm. And so we were able to help this family stay together. But something that we learned was these two words that we had never heard before, human trafficking. I was like, what? Human trafficking? And this is 2006. We're like, what does that mean? And we, we quickly learned that this was something that was happening. And we thought at the time it was just there in places like that of, of extreme poverty. But it was, it's, it, it's expanded, obviously. We know what it is today, but we thought, wow, we were able to help prevent the potential of a woman because some of her friends went with these people and they never returned. Wow. They were trafficked. We were able to help this family stay together, and we know that that's probably what, what would have happened to this woman. Jamie and his wife couldn't get that trip out of their minds. The people, their poverty, and their vulnerability. Slowly, Jamie and his wife realized that God had awakened a burden in their hearts that wouldn't go away. But what could they do? More on that after the break. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing. And their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. 
They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Ten Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of the Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to The World and Everything in It. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Welcome back to Compelled. Jamie was now working as the youth pastor of a growing church. On a given week, they were reaching over 1,000 teenagers and showing them the love of the Father in very real and tangible ways, which also included mission trips. It was after one of these mission trips when Jamie and his wife saw abject poverty and a woman who was almost trafficked because of it that he realized God was putting a burden on his heart for the vulnerable. But what did that mean practically, and what could he do about it? He had to find out. Here I am in this youth ministry, and it's just incredible. It's, I'm thinking, wow, most youth pastors want to do what I'm doing. And this was my first job in youth ministry. It's like, this is crazy. And then I just, this holy discontent started settling over me. And I went to my pastor and I, and I said, I don't know why. I don't know why I feel this way. I shouldn't feel this way. I have the best job in America when it comes to being in ministry. I don't know why I feel this way. And, and he was so gracious. I don't know that I've ever been able to really thank him. I mean, I've, I've tried, but he was so gracious to me and he was so confident. He says, Jamie, I give you full permission to pursue whatever it is that God is doing. And we found ourselves just putting ourselves before the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you have for us? And I remember one summer we went, uh, we went on a little trip, went to Tennessee where my friend, Alan, who led, helped me uh, see and lead me to the Lord, uh, was getting married. And so it was in his wedding and we went to the wedding. We thought, well, maybe the Lord's calling us to uh, leave Florida and go. So we're just going to pray. We got to Nashville and we're like, 
just didn't have a sense that was it. Yeah. We were there, we were thinking, this is going to be it. We're going to, maybe we need to land in Nashville. We get there and we're like, no, this isn't it. At the time my grandmother, my dad's mom was dying of cancer. And so we were going back from there to Iowa, have a little family reunion. And we get there and we're, I look at her and I go, I think we're supposed to move back to Iowa. And in my mind, I'm like, no, not Iowa. I can't go back here. You know, I, I like, what's in Iowa? But I'm like, it's just cornfields and, and nothingness. It's like, it's Iowa, but it is beautiful. I will tell you, um, my brother had come to faith a couple years before that. And he had reached out to me and said, hey, my pastor is looking for a youth pastor. And he asked about you. I said, I'll talk to him. So I talked to him and, and we have a conversation and then an interview. And then I go up and they offered me a job. And at the same time, I'm going back to Iowa. I go, it's not about being a youth pastor. God wants something from me here in this. It was really neat for me. My family and I were only there for a year and a half before the Lord called us back to Tampa. But in that year and a half time that we were there, I got to revisit some of these places and, and find closure again. I even found that little apartment that I ran out of all those years ago. And I walked those 10 miles to that mall. And during that time, the Lord began to show me that even then he was with me. Even then, at 10 years old, that little boy, 11, 12, he never left. He was there. Every step I took in that journey was like healing to my soul. And I was filled with gratitude. Yet I had this fire burning inside of me for so many other people that experienced similar moments and yet have not experienced a holy moment. They have not experienced Christ and all of his power and resurrection. And I think that, I know, I don't even think that is where I began to get a passion and a burden. And my heart began to echo in pain for those that were hurting, not just for their physical circumstance, but for their eternal circumstance. And I wanted those who were vulnerable to realize there was hope and that it's not found in a better situation, it's found in Christ. And so we quickly found our ways back, coming back to Tampa, but in doing so, we were helping my, my friend at the time, who was a youth pastor at the church that I was on staff at here in Tampa, was launching their first plant. And he had asked me to come back to help. And I, I knew that God was birthing something in my wife and I in the terms of ministry that was going to be different than just a local church, but was going to be a complement to it. Mm. And so we came back. Not only did we come back and have to, I had to go find a, a regular employment, but we helped launch church. And that is where I clearly heard the words when I had this burden inside of me for the vulnerable, for the hurting, for the least of these, I just heard the words, no more. This can't continue to happen. This is an opportunity for everyday 
Christians for the church to step up and to step in to places of vulnerability to show Christ in real tangible ways. And so God birthed the work of No More in 2011 officially, and it's been almost 11 years that we've been doing it since then. The name for No More comes from Matthew 25, where Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then a little later, when asked when these things happened, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Today, no more is equipping the church to confront and combat each of these things. Their mantra is no more slavery, no more poverty, no more orphans, and no more hopeless. And as you can imagine, their focus on orphans and foster care is especially meaningful to Jamie personally. What he didn't expect, though, is how that passion would permeate throughout his entire family early on. I remember there was this moment I was I was preaching at the church that I was that I helped launch and talking about the work of No More that God was birthing. And I was talking about the modern day issue of foster care. And my wife in the past had said, maybe we should adopt. And I'm like a typical guy. I'm like, no, 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 that's not for, no, we can't do that. We got three boys. We got our own stuff. You know, we got a lot of stuff going, you know, it's, no, we can't do that. And so I remember just being inspired in that moment. I said, you know what? I can't ask you, your, this audience to do something. I said, you know what? We're going to step into care. If you don't see anything else, see, watch us do it. And then we want you to do it too. We are going to step in and do something. We're going to get involved in this issue. My wife is sitting in the front row and she says out loud, we are. Uh, uh. <laughs> and that moment was the catalyst for our family to begin to foster. We met with a friend and she invited us into some foster classes and really encouraged us to consider fostering before we considered it adoption. And I remember our first placement and she was six months old. Her name was Bella and she was beautiful. And I just immediately fell in love. I had three boys. So to have a little girl I was like, she had me wrapped the moment she walked in. Well, she didn't walk. She was six months old, right? She had me wrapped around her little finger. Just so precious. And I'm praying with the Lord about this. And I just have this sense that maybe I shouldn't pour all of myself because, I mean, what if she has to go back? What if she has to go back to a family and I lose her? And then this moment came to me. I'm like, what if Jesus had that same idea? Mm. What if he held back just a little bit? Maybe he wouldn't have ever put himself on the cross, but he didn't. He followed the scripture in Isaiah 58, you know, when Jesus is talking to the Israelites, he says, spend yourself on behalf of the oppressed in 58.10. And that was the example I had, was the life of Christ. It's the only example we all have is how Jesus lived his life. And he, he, he laid everything out for us. And so in that moment, when a clarity came to me that I, I was like, I have to go all in. And so we just, we laid it all in line for this little girl. We actually thought at one moment we were going to be able to adopt her. And it was so clear that things weren't looking like she could go back home, but then something happened. 
And unfortunately, or I guess you could say fortunately, the judge overturned everything and sent her back to her family. And she had been with us for uh, two years. We're devastated and we had to take her back to the case manager's office where we were going to meet her family and let her go. We took our boys, wrong or right, we took them. And as she was leaving and obviously crying for us, uh, my boys were standing at the at the doors watching her leave and I just standing behind them watching and tears streaming down their face and I'm thinking what have I done they're gonna need therapy for the rest of their lives and something really profound happened a couple of months later we got a phone call for another placement and I was at work my wife calls and she goes we just got a phone call for another little girl who needs a home and I'm telling my wife, I'm like, babe, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that the boys are ready for this. I don't know that we can put them through this right now. She goes, well, they're in the car, so I can put them on speakerphone. We can talk to them. I'm like, oh, great, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm telling the boys about the situation. She got me on speakerphone, and I said, now listen, boys, I understand. If you're not ready, it's okay because this is not a mom and dad decision. This is a family decision. And and I was kind of like trying to help them say no. Uh-huh. And my middle son, Caleb, he interrupts me. He says, Dad, how can we not? It's what we're called to do. And in that moment, my then 15-year-old son taught me something what I was doing in moderation, he was prepared to do in excess. And so the example I was laying out for my kids about laying our lives down, he was all in. And I'm like, you're right. We have to go all in. I thought that I was going to wreck my children, but all I really did was help them understand that this is the way of the gospel. This is what Jesus laid out for us. And they were willing mm. to lay down their lives, even at a young age, and say, no, we. if a child needs this family, this child needs to come to this family. And so I just, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged by that because now I go, man, I thought by doing something so vulnerable would expose my children and make them you know, hurt and struggle and never want to go through that. But when we were doing it for the sake of Christ, it just really gave them a sense of confidence that they could do even more than I thought I could do. Sadly, there are still millions of children who are orphaned or are in need of foster care. And tragically, there is a direct link to human trafficking. There was a study done back, I think it's like 2016. And so it's a little old, it's a little dated, but it, but the, the truth of the study still matters by the FBI, uh, now an F- ex-FBI agent, uh, who determined that children that age out of foster care, seven out of 10 girls who age out, within 48 hours, they either get approached or they become victims of trafficking within 48 hours of aging out. 
eight out of 10 boys end up in prisons. So the correlation between the foster care system and trafficking is very real in the U.S. And quite honestly, they don't have to go very far. Those who want to prey on those vulnerabilities don't have to go very far. They don't have to go to a third world country to find someone to get over here to use their. Our anti-trafficking director says a lot that human trafficking is nothing more than the exploitation of vulnerabilities. And so where you find vulnerabilities, you find people that are hurting, hopeless, and that have the potential of being trafficked. Um, and so human trafficking is, you know, the exploitation of those vulnerabilities in the form of labor and sex trafficking uh, all across the globe. And it's exploiting those vulnerabilities for selfish gain. And so the unfortunate truth is human trafficking is becoming one of the, the top, if not currently the top most uh, criminalized enterprise in the world because whereas drug can only be sold once, people can be sold multiple times over and over and over again. And that's the sad truth. I'll share a, a, another personal story in, in the midst of our, our foster care journey. We got a, um, we got a newborn and the newborn came to us and we, you know, part of the foster care journey is the parents still have opportunities to visit with their children. So we met the mother. And through conversations that my wife had with her, it was very clear we knew she was being trafficked by her boyfriend. Her boyfriend was using her, selling her to get drugs. Uh, they were both addicted and he would sell her multiple times throughout a day in order for them to get their high. We helped her get into a program and she went in and out of this, this program for a while, but we just stayed consistent with her. It's neat to see this woman now transformed years later and she's remarried. The Lord is redeeming her relationships with her children and she actually gets to be in their lives again. And so, yeah, there, there, there are children that are exploited. There are men that are exploited. Labor trafficking is one of the biggest forms of trafficking here in the U.S. Uh, a lot of men are trafficked and brought here. Women are trafficked and brought here for forced labor. That, that one's harder to kind of see, right? And it's harder to do something about. But it's real, uh, you know, that's happening here every day. I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll come out and say it, you know, yes, we care about children having better outcomes and women not being trafficked anymore. We absolutely care about that. But even, even weightier to us is their eternity. Mm. We do these things so that they might know yeah. who Jesus is. We, we're like Jesus giving water to the woman at the well, right? It's not just about the physical but it is about the eternal and we want them to know their eternity matters and that they're coming to Christ and finding salvation through him so that their eternity is set is so paramount. And, and as believers, when we begin to say, not those people over there, my people, then we realize that matters because if we want our children to know Jesus, we should want those people, these people to know Jesus too, my brother, my sister, my child. It becomes ownership to us and we say, we have to do something about it. As our conversation wrapped up, 
I asked Jamie to share about just one of the practical ways No More is serving today. And we realize there are physical needs. So one of the things in our community that we recognize is a real struggle is housing. There's not enough beds and services for women that actually want to find this freedom, to get out of this world. So even if they said yes today, Mm -hmm. there wouldn't be anywhere to put them. And so as we've gotten involved in this space of human trafficking and we've begun to do a lot of education. So we do a lot of education and awareness around the subject matter of human trafficking. We have an online platform to help train people so they can learn more about it. So they know what to do when they see it. And then we also realized as we're doing this, there's not enough beds. And so we see this gap and we're like, Lord, uh, we don't want that gap to be there. And we want the church to be able to respond but there needs to be something done about this. So as we prayed and we began to cast a vision, we've helped open up a house, the very first house in St. Pete, Florida for survivors. Um, There's eight beds there. And what's neat about that is no more as an organization, we are an awareness, education, and a mobilization organization. We're not necessarily the organization on the front lines doing the trauma-informed therapy and, and doing the program services for these women. We are collaborating no more does a lot of this. We collaborate with other nonprofits of faith of the faith community to serve these women well and these people well. And so we have the home in St. Pete, but we don't do the programming. We have an, a, a partner organization that's doing all the services, the intake, determining where these women need to go and which house they need to go into, uh, what kinds of services and case management they need. And they're doing that so well. We're like, okay, we're going to let you keep doing what you do well. And we're going to try to figure out how to solve this issue of housing. So we We got a house in St. Pete and just this past week, the Lord provided um, funding for us to purchase a property in the county that we're in, Hillsborough County. And and we're going to be opening up another home for more women to be rescued, redeemed and restored. And so that's really exciting because, you know, there's not in our state, you know, a study was done a few years back, but there was only like 42 beds in the whole state for long term care for women. Wow. And so we're like, oh, we got to do something about that. If we're third in the country for trafficking, that's not even close to the number of beds that we need and services. And so we're like, okay, let's see, how can we solve this problem? So we're grateful there are other people that are coming alongside of us to help us solve that problem. We're grateful the church is coming alongside to help solve that problem. It is the church. It's the people of God who are going to make the greatest impact and make the biggest difference in the lives of those that are hurting. And so we're grateful for for people that have come alongside, other believers that are saying, yes, I want to declare no more with my life, with my finances, with my support. Jamie, it's been a pleasure, man. I'm so glad that we got to connect and uh, so grateful for what you guys are doing as well and for sharing your story also. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for having me. I really appreciate it. Jamie's story has so many layers, from being a little boy looking for security to realizing that God the Father had always been looking out for him the entire time to serving the Lord through the work of no more. One thing that Jamie said that really stood out to me though is that our desire as Christians should be to help the vulnerable realize there is hope. But it's not hope found in a better situation. No, it's hope found only in Christ. No More has tons of resources they would like to give to you. And if you're interested, they'll even speak at your church. To get started, visit declarenomore.com. 
We'll also include a link to their ministry and some of their videos in our show notes for this episode on our website at compelledpodcast.com. Take five seconds and ask yourself, is there someone I know who needs to hear Jamie's story? If so, send it to them. We release all of our stories for free and don't charge anything. But if you have been blessed by these stories and you want to help us continue making more stories just like this one, then you can become a monthly Patreon supporter. Get started at compelledpodcast.com and click donate. Finally, if you're looking for a podcast app on your cell phone, then I would suggest CastBox. It's easy to use and lets you download episodes to listen to ahead of time for when you're offline. And it's free. Learn more at castbox.fm. This episode was edited by Will Jackson. Our sound engineer is Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to compelled listeners Brent and Elizabeth Petzelt for giving us the introduction to Jamie and for letting us crash at your place for several days when we were recording. Our kids had a blast. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's story with Stu Fullendorf, a staunch atheist who had earned millions of dollars launching multiple companies in the technology sector. But after a booze-filled party, he couldn't shake the idea What if God actually was real? I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. Finally, by 2010, Trish went off on vacation without me. I went on a big bender. She got back and I was on the verge of dying from the alcoholism. I blew 0.4. So if you don't know, 0.45 is death, 0.08 is DUI. I blew 0.4, so very close to death and told her, I can't do this anymore. I'm in bondage to this. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.